Unless I go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Our reading this morning from John 16 is a textbook example of what we might call pre-morning. In response to the news that Jesus is leaving them, the disciples are overcome with grief. Grief in anticipation of his departure. Grief preceding this change. I am a pre-mourner. In anticipation of change, saying goodbye, I feel the weight of it before it happens. The moments leading up to goodbyes, departures are so hard for me. My wife, on the other hand, is not a pre-mourner. She normally grieves after the change. And I can remember before Shannon and I were married, while we were long-distance dating, whining at airports and departure lounges about her appearing to feel nothing in anticipation of our separation, while I was a mess. Like, don't you even care? My whining is reflective, perhaps, of a certain self-centeredness. That's evident in the disciples' response to Jesus in our reading. In grief, there's this certain overwhelming self-absorption that can overtake us. And Jesus identifies this in verse 5. He says to them, none of you is even asking, where am I going? The disciples can't see beyond themselves, can't see beyond their grief in their pre-mourning. In contrast, but also in the midst of such great grief, we have in John 16 the figure of Jesus who is preserved in selflessness, in this servant-hearted posture, caring for them, promising them. It's here where I want to focus this morning. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday the church celebrates the gift of God's Spirit, the pouring out of God's presence and power upon all flesh, reversing in some fashion the dispersal we see in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, drawing the nations again together in Christ. The rushing forth of the same creative breath, giving life to all things we prayed over in Psalm 104. The, the generous empowering of the followers of Jesus with spiritual gift, gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12. A teacher of mine once told me that alongside Christmas and Easter, Pentecost is to be treasured as one of the paramount celebrations of the church. That is, alongside the gift of the incarnation, the, the word become flesh. Alongside the resurrection, Jesus' triumph over the powers hell, of hell, sin, and death. The gift of the Spirit is to be equally regarded, equally esteemed, equally celebrated. And this Sunday, we're, we're giving it a college try. Many of y'all are wearing red. We're going to party and potluck afterward. We'll be praying for and celebrating over new members in our community. And in a few moments, we'll rejoice over the baptisms of Nora, Perry, Tom, Everly, Jane, Catherine, and Holly Claire, trying to give the Spirit, trying to give Pentecost their proper due. And as part of giving the Spirit his due, celebrating the Spirit, I want to look this morning at the Gospel reading from John. We've been moving through the beginning chapters of this biography of Jesus, and this morning we're, we're taking a bit of a detour. We're jumping ahead to focus on Jesus' words regarding the Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate. 
And as we look at these verses in John 16, I want to group our thinking around two headings. First, the God who sends, and second, the Spirit who guides. So first, the God who sends. The Silmarillion is J.R.R. Tolkien's sort of prequel to The Lord of the Rings. I see gestures of like, yes, Silmarillion reference. Um, It's kind of a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. And it begins with this remarkable creation story where this chorus sings creation into being led by the creator. And there's beauty and order and harmony sung into being. But then this note of discord emerges. One song, one voice in jealousy, envy, rebellion is out of harmony, out of alignment, opposed to the goodness, the beauty, the order. And it's this tragic moment. But the wonder of the the creation story that Tolkien writes is that even that voice, discordant, opposed, in rebellion, under the creator is drawn in, is woven in, adapted, drawn into the story of creation such that the song of creation, the song that began all things, is made more beautiful than when it first began. John chapter 16 is part of this larger section in the Gospel of John known as the farewell discourse. From John 14 to 17, Jesus is giving this final talk to the disciples before his arrest and his crucifixion. He's preparing them for this traumatic, discordant experience that they're about to go through, his death on the cross. And while post-resurrection, Jesus returns to them, risen, victorious, even then he will physically leave them in his ascension. It's a truism of management that you must tell people and prepare people prior to upcoming changes, help them anticipate the differences they will experience, point them to resources that they can draw on in the transitory period, and describe the new reality they will inhabit. This is akin to what Jesus is doing here. Some of you have shared with me the the value you felt from either listening to the Gospel of John, reading over and over the Gospel of John as we move through this series. One thing you might do this week, whether you've been reading it or not, is just devote your attention to these four chapters, John 14 to 17. These are some of the most exquisite chapters in all of the Bible. It involves Jesus praying to the Father, God praying to God. You can't get more potent and loaded than that. But throughout this farewell discourse, these four chapters, Jesus refers to this idea of sending or being sent. Six times, in fact, two of which are in our reading today. And in these six instances, Jesus is actually referring to two different sendings. First, as he alludes to in verse 5 of of chapter 16, is the Father's sending of himself. That's what we've read about in John chapter 1, the incarnation, the, the second person of the Trinity entering into our world and experience. And Jesus describes here his departure in terms of returning to the one who sent him. That's the first sending. The second sending he refers to is what we're celebrating, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, though, in this final speech throughout these chapters, Jesus refers to the sending of the Spirit in a couple of different ways. Here in verse 7, he says, I will send the Spirit to you. 
But in John 14, 26, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. Curious. Even more curious, in John 15, just before our text today, Jesus refers to the Spirit this way. When the Comforter comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. So, do you hear it? Once Jesus says, he'll send the Spirit. Another time he says, the Father will send the Spirit. And a third time he says, he'll send the Spirit from the Father. And refers to the Spirit as the one who goes out from the Father. We're getting pretty granular here. Who cares? Well, in the history of the church, it's kind of a big deal. And you may notice that here at Church of the Cross, when we recite the Nicene Creed, we refer to the Holy Spirit as the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, other Christians, particularly in Eastern Orthodox churches, reciting this same creed do not include the words, and the Son. And other churches might say them, but they're kind of bracketed out in parentheses, like, uh, like a little... And those words are known, you can impress your friends with this, fancily, as the filioque clause. I don't know who your friends are if they're going to be impressed with that, but <laughs> it's there. But the inclusion of these words in the creed was not original. It occurred later, and without those churches that became the Eastern Orthodox churches we know today, they didn't have a say in it. And the inclusion of these words is a big deal. It's not so much only for what they meant, though that is debated, but for how they came to be in the creed. Now, believe it or not, I don't really want to talk about this. I just thought it was like important for you to know. And it's interesting. And maintaining the connection between Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit is so important. And these words help us do that. But it's actually tangential to the point I want to emphasize. What is my point, you might somewhat impatiently ask? My point is simply this. From Jesus' farewell discourse, we are reminded that God, both the Father and the Son, are characterized by the action of sending. The Father sends the Son, and the Son and Father, in some fashion, in concert, send the Spirit. And we won't focus here, but the Spirit sends too, sends the disciples. It seems it's God's good pleasure to send. In the face of sin and a fallen creation, in the face of uncertainty and grief, the disciples will experience God's response is sending. And not sending in this, like, gesture kind of way, a missive, like we might send an email or send our regards. Notice that when God sends, he sends himself. The Son, the very likeness of God, and the Spirit, the very presence and breath of God animating all things, now sent to his followers. In response to the brokenness of the world, the rebellion of human beings, in response to your rebellion. In response to the grief and uncertainty his followers experience, God sends himself. He gifts himself. And we celebrate this reality today on Pentecost as a discrete moment in history. The disciples in the upper room receiving the Spirit in this unique, in history way. But there is a very real sense in which Jesus now is continually sending the Spirit. In a few moments, when we baptize these children, precious in God's sight, made in his image, we will call upon the Holy Spirit to be sent to them, that they might bear the image of God in Christ's likeness, that the love of God might fill them 
that they might be empowered as witnesses to Jesus in their lives. But this is not a one-time thing. It's not like one and done. Sorry, Jane and Everly, you got that when you were young. You don't get it again. It is an ongoing reality. The baptismal font this morning is actually leaking a little bit. And I thought that's a perfect metaphor. We leak the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit continually to be sent to us. And as you hear those words about bearing the image of God, being a witness to Jesus, don't you feel for yourself the need you have for the Spirit? Whatever previous spiritual experiences you have had, there is more for you. And the promise of who Jesus reveals God to be is this sending God. The promise is that the Spirit is available to you in an ongoing way. I cannot tell you how great a comfort this is to me as a pastor that Jesus declares that he is sending the Spirit. Many of us can identify with the disciples in John 16, marked by grief, stricken by uncertainty and the sufferings of life. We are sad and we are scared. And some of you this week know profound difficulty, profound brokenness and confusion, situations that cause us to cry out, God, where are you? What are you doing? And as your priest in those situations, I am with you. I do not know all that the Lord is doing in these various situations. But according to Jesus' words, we can with confidence say that in every situation, at every moment, he is, at the very least, sending us his Holy Spirit. A comforter, a guide, an advocate, a helper, the one who strengthens us in Christ, the one who glorifies him. In whatever situation, whatever difficulty that you encounter, that is at the very least what Jesus is doing, sending you his power, his presence, the life-giving force that gives life to all creation. This is how the Silmarillion works. This is how the song is woven in, that discordant, disharmonious song. What the enemy meant for evil by the power of the Holy Spirit, by Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit, is turned for God's good purposes. He is glorified in these situations. His purposes will not be frustrated. We are drawn in, woven into new creation by the sending of His Spirit. And so this, if nothing else, is the action item for Pentecost. Call upon Him. Call upon Jesus for the sending of the Spirit in your life. Ask him to send the Holy Spirit to you. You might be like, why do I need to call? He's sending him already. Why would I need to call? Simply put, God is not coercive. He will go where he is desired. He will send him to you as you call upon him. Call upon him. Rest in the truth that the Spirit is with you. Receive the Spirit. Rest in the certainty of his promise that he is sending the Spirit, that he will send the Spirit, that he has sent the Spirit. But what, what we might say, does the Spirit do? What benefit does the Spirit provide? I'm so glad you asked. Within the New Testament, we might point to Luke and Acts and the ways the Spirit empowers the church, graces us with strength to serve, to, to bear witness to Jesus. The way he strengthens the followers of Jesus to carry the gospel forward to the nations, often with remarkable signs and wonders, movements of power. 
We might also point to the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 among them, the gifts the church is given, or, or in Romans, the way the love of God is poured out in our hearts. That's all true. That's all worth celebrating. But our text from John highlights one particular aspect of the Spirit's work in our lives, one particular benefit for us through Jesus' sending, and that is that the Spirit is our guide, a guide into truth. And the Spirit is, after all, according to Jesus, the Spirit of truth. And this work of guidance, you'll know, involves both the world and those who are followers of Jesus. Involves the world, that is, the world as it's constituted in opposition to God and his purposes, in opposition to Jesus. As guide, the Spirit convicts the world regarding sin, judgment, and righteousness. That is heavy. There is a negative quality to the Spirit's work as guide, saying, this is not the way. There is something better, more right, more in line with God's purposes in the world. This is an aspect of the Spirit's work, the, the conviction of sin, the recognition that we as human beings live under the judgment of God and that our conceptions of righteousness fall far short. But there is a right way of being and relating in the world. And this is the Spirit's work, the, the Spirit's convicting power in our lives. But I do want to say that as people to whom the Spirit, Jesus has sent the Spirit, we're called to participate in this aspect of the Spirit's work. Not in like belligerence or condemning people. It's primarily in embodying the truth, like living as an alternative, a countercultural prophetic witness, pointing to one another and for the sake of others to the, the true, just, and good way that Jesus has revealed. Shannon and I, the other week, had the privilege of going to the cliffs of Dover in England. And it must be like a result of it being a less litigious society or something, but there are no guardrails on those cliffs, and it is freaky. They're like 200-foot sheer drops. And if someone was walking to the edge of that cliff, it would be an act of love to say, do not go this way anymore. You need to turn around. There's a better way. And such is the way the Spirit works in the world, as an act of love, revealing, convicting, drawing people, calling people to the way of Jesus. But there is, of course, also this positive aspect of the Spirit's guidance, specifically for the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, to whom the Spirit is sent. Jesus tells the disciples, there's more for you to learn. There's more than you can bear right now. I was driving with my kids in Austin five or six years ago, so they were like five and seven or six or something like that, pretty young, but dangerously able to read the signs that we were seeing as we drove around the city. And driving along the highway somewhere, the immortal question came from the back seat. Dad, what's a gentleman's club? <laughs> I absolutely froze. If you have kids, here I may have just put this in your lap uh, for you. But in that moment, I could only answer, we're going to have to talk about that when you're older. <laughs> it's too much for you to bear. It was too much for me to bear. This is similar to the place the disciples are in, reeling in grief, scared about the future, unable to handle the fullness of all that Jesus has for them. But Jesus' sending of the Spirit means they will not remain in that situation that they will not into the future be alone in any circumstance, and that they have the Spirit 
the guidance, the direction, the insight of one who acts in continuity with Jesus, the one whom they've known and walked with. Verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth. In the most vexing of situations, however perplexing the world becomes, however depleted you and I are, Jesus' sending of the Spirit means we have a guide, that we are not alone in our pursuit of the truth, in our desire to walk in the truth. Now, this is not the promise of your own personal supercomputer, your own private chat GPT. Jesus' words here are not suggesting that the Spirit illuminates all the secrets of the world, as if the disciples like, received a download of the periodic table of elements or something like that. Rather, what is meant by the truth, all truth, is a connection to Jesus, who describes himself in this same speech as the truth. The spirit of truth continues and deepens work that Jesus began amongst his followers. It announces, the spirit announces and declares to them the truth of who he is, the truth of his way in the world. The spirit is entirely Jesus-focused, drawing the church, drawing us further into his way and into the relationship he shares with the Father. And as we will confess in these baptisms, that is the most important thing of all. It is the most essential and most integral truth. That is what Jesus' sending of the Spirit provides us. Confidence that we will be guided into the truth. Guided by the internal witness of the Spirit. Guided through the pages of Scripture. The same Spirit causing John and others to recall and remember the, the words, the teachings of Jesus in continuity with Israel's story built upon in the writings of the New Testament, crystallizing for us the truth. The internal witness of the Spirit working among us in communities as we submit to one another. This is what the Spirit is doing. Let us together discern. That's just a little of how the Spirit works among us as God's people. But what I want to emphasize as we close is the sheer goodness of this promise, this work of the Spirit. It's not dramatic, perhaps, but this promise of the Spirit working to usher us into truth is remarkable, remarkably good. You're a really smart, educated, cognitively capable group of people, but we get confused you and I get overwhelmed and confounded, and our reasoning is warped and diminished by our sin. Our hopes of knowing God are dim in and of ourselves. Impossible, in fact. But by the sending of his Spirit, Jesus has made it possible that we, this disparate group of people and people around the world, can know the Father, can know Jesus, who is the truth in ever-increasing fullness. He guides us in the truth deeper into reality, deeper into the life of the God. You have a guide. Call upon him. Rely upon him. This is what we are about to baptize these individuals into. This is what so many of us have received. That can be yours as you put your faith in Jesus. This can be yours more today as you call upon Jesus to send the Spirit as you listen to and receive his guidance into the truth. As we transition just in a moment to baptism, let us first call to Jesus that he might send as the God who sends the Spirit 
the Spirit who is our guide, upon those being baptized, upon us, and upon our community, that we might be guided into all the truth. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the God who sends. And as your people, O oh Lord, we call out to you. We ask in your mercy and in your grace, would you send your Holy Spirit to us in new, fresh, and deeper ways? Would you guide us in the truth? For those who come this morning hurting, for those who come this morning confused or weary, for those of us who come joyful, O oh Lord, would your spirit be poured out upon us? And God, specifically, your spirit so often guides us into the truth by shaping our wills, our desires, our loves. So I ask that you would move upon us in the community in such a way that we would love what is true and right and just, that we would have a desire for the things of you, that we would hunger and thirst for your holiness, your righteousness, that we would find in ourselves deeper, new appetites for walking with you and intimacy with you and holiness in our lives, O oh Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Send your power, your presence upon us, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.